So friends, thank you for joining. We, um, we have friends in here and we're also live on the, on, the, on the Facebook page because I know many more people want to access it there. Uh, but the benefit to being here is that you can um, ask questions and share thoughts. And um, my plan is to, is to, is to present uh, some of his ideas and then take some questions and conversation but in the meantime, between now and that point, feel free to ask questions or comment in the chat on the side, of course. And I will continue to look at that as we go so that we can be interactive in that way as well. Um, and uh, uh, AJ, you'll, you'll monitor the Facebook page. And if people have questions or thoughts over there, you'll, you'll circle them back to us. Thank you for that. Okay. So let's start with a little nigun, a little nigun just to wake up this morning if you haven't uh, fully woken up yet. Good morning, friends. Shalom, shalom. I know um, uh, others are going to be joining us here in this room. And we welcome you here. And also, um, many are joining from the Facebook Live, and we'll get their questions and comments over here as well. So we want to jump right in because we only have uh, an hour together. And um, I want to start this conversation by saying this is not a, hes a, a hespit, but it's a, but it's a, it's a class. It, it, it's not a hespit; it's a class. If it was a hespit, it would mean all we're going to do is give accolades about the rabbi's greatness, um, and um, and that we are basically sitting, you know, sitting Shiva. Shiva, of course, is over. Um, and if you want, there are, th th you know, thank God, there are literally hundreds of articles that have been written, videos, hespedim, eulogies um, that, have been, that have been offered. And so we can get that. This is a class, which means we're going to learn. We're going to learn. We're going we're to explore ideas. And that also means that we're going to engage those ideas critically. As a critically thinking Jew, that's, what, that's how we would honor him. We wouldn't honor him by just saying, look how great he is. We would honor him by engaging in his ideas. So um, those who, who mere only feel total admiration and want to express that, we welcome that. Those who want to engage in, in the critical thought of ideas, we welcome that. And um, while I or others here may have had some disagreements in thought, we are here to honor his greatness um, and to honor the dead. Um, and in the fullness of history, we'll consider if he got positions X, Y, or Z right. Um, and so we're not here to, to uh, uh, critique him, of course, but merely to engage in the open marketplace of ideas. Rabbi Sachs was, in my view, hands down, the, n the number one uh, public intellectual for the, for the Jewish people. 
um, the number one global statesman um, for the Jewish people, uh, that he had the biggest platform and was, um, was the, the broadest in, in his vocabulary and philosophies and able to reach further. And so the loss is tremendous as a philosopher, as a theologian, as an author, um, and, uh, and to some degree as a politician. Um, he, of course, followed uh, Rabbi Emanuel Jacobowitz, Lord Jacobowitz, as the chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth in 91. And he was followed after his 22 years of service by Chief Rabbi Mervis. Both of those people had very different approaches than, than what he had to that position. And yet he built the prestige of British Jewry and of the intellectual uh, basis of, of Torah and of Judaism through his philosophical approaches. Once he left, less than a decade ago, the chief rabbinate, he um, you know, continued his thought through, New, through NYU, New York University, through Yeshiva University, through King's College in London, by continuing to publish. You can access his podcasts on Torah. Actually, it's interesting that, that he, he created his whole year of podcasts in advance. <laughs> Talk about an anti-procrastinator. Um, it was all based upon something he published already, uh, but he already, so thankfully they're going to roll out his, his podcast uh, and his Torah for the year, even though he's, he's no longer uh, physically among us. And, um, and that's really quite a gift um, to leave that because for someone like me, I, I, I not only miss uh, his ideas, but we'll miss his voice. Um, uh, when I jog at five in the morning, I listen. Uh, I, he's one of the voices I listen to when I'm, when I'm thinking through. Uh, it's actually totally dark out. And, and then the, the sky feels illuminated when he says something that really inspires me. So it's a, it's a, it's a great thing. Now, his works, his most famous work in the broader world is The Dignity of Difference. The Dignity of Difference. If you go to, if you go to the book page, please. The Dignity of Difference. And we'll, we will look at some of that. Um, the one that spoke to me most deeply. Can you go to the next slide, please? Uh, to Heal a Fractured World um, is where he deals with his kind of tikkun olam theology. Um, and then he has these very, various Koren Sachs uh, works with the Koren publisher um, around holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Pesach, um, and his Covenant and Conversations where he looks at Torah commentary. Um, and then he has various things that are geared more towards the Jewish community, the politics of hope, the persistence of faith, arguments for the sake of heaven, um, really dozens of, of, of treasures. And so what I really want to do here is look through a number of his quotes, which I think, um, having read his books, uh, highlight kind of the, the, uh, his, his ideas. And I want to say that, and I don't say this as a critique, he, 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 was not a, a, he, um, he was not a constructivist uh, theologian um, or, 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 an, or an original philosopher. What is that saying? He did not create a new theology, um, nor did he um, create, offer new philosophies, right? Martin Buber constructs new theology, right? Yitz Greenberg offers new theology. The Lubavitcher Rebbe or, or, or Soloveitchik, they're actually paving a new path. What Sachs's greatness was, in my view, was being the most articulate version of the existing theologies and philosophies with, which he inherited, right? He's not interested in saying something new. He's just interested in saying it in the most profound way possible, where literally every sentence of a book you can quote, right? Um, because it's so quotable, okay? Are we having a problem with the slides, AJ? Are you still here? 
Oh, there he is. Okay. All right. Uh, so anyways, there's, <laughs> there's, the, there's the slide that, that lists uh, his primary works here. Um, we're going to come back on the issues of pluralism and denominationalism. His book, One People, there on the right, is, is going to be the central one. On the issues of interfaith uh, pluralism, the dignity of difference. Of course, if you want to pray with his things, you can pick up his Haggadah, you can pick up his Sidur, um, where he has commentaries and translations. Um, and then, um, you know, the ones about Jewish continuity, like Letter in the Scroll, or will we have Jewish grandchildren? These questions about thinking about Jewish survival. Okay, let's go to our first, our first source here. This comes from his book, Future Tense. Future Tense. Judaism is a religion of details, but we miss the point if we do not sometimes step back and see the larger picture. To be a Jew is to be an agent of hope in a world serially threatened by despair. Every ritual, every mitzvah, every syllable of the Jewish story, every element of Jewish law is a protest. This is a big theme of his idea. Judaism as protest is a protest against escapism, resignation, or the blind acceptance of fate. Judaism is a sustained struggle, the greatest ever known against the world that is in the name of the world that could be, should be, but is not yet. There is no more challenging vocation throughout history where human beings have sought hope. They have found it in the Jewish story. Judaism is the religion and Israel the home of hope. Now, this source itself, we could literally spend the entire time on that source itself because um, it really sums up about his, his main 10 themes. And, um, and just to highlight a little bit there is, um, first of all, um, he is conservative and progressive, right? He is a traditionalist, right? When asked in any, any question in an interview about a contemporary problem, he goes back to Chumash, right? The, his framework for dealing with injustice is the Exodus story. Right? His framework for thinking of issues of leadership comes from Bereshit. It comes from Genesis. He wants to frame every contemporary spiritual moral problem in traditional language, in traditional text. He's a conservative. He's a traditionalist. But he's a progressive, as you see here in Future Tense, not in the political sense I'm talking about, but in that he is looking forward. He is talking about the world that can be built. He thinks that Judaism is a protest against the world that is right? Because the world can be different. It can be better. And so here he's talking about hope. And so Judaism is not to fit in into social conformity. Judaism is to be a subversive force, if you will, a countercultural force against the world that is so that we can dream of and work to build a world that could be. Now, what do we do, of course, with ideas that conflict with that? Tolerance, tolerance. Here's what he says here. Why does it matter? Because truth emerges from disagreement and debate. Because tolerance means making space for difference. Because justice involves ad, adi alterum partum, listening to the other side. And because in Orwell's words, liberty means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. And so tolerance, for some people, it doesn't go far enough, right? Tolerance doesn't go far enough, but for him, at the very least, he thinks we need to create a civil discourse where we can disagree. We need to be in dialogue in a space where we can listen to each other. He thinks this about injustice, right? That if you've been in through a nasty divorce, 
you need to be able to sit and listen to each other. If you're in a fight with a friend or with a colleague, there needs to be a space where we can hear each other. And he brings this to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? The most important thing in Sachs's view we can do is move beyond our narratives of trauma and have a space where we can hear each other by listening. And he thinks this in interfaith. Now, he's less interested in interdenominational dialogue. We'll come to that later. But interfaith dialogue, as you can see here, he is not only a politician in the sense that he is representing as, a, as the best, in my, again, in my view, global ambassador for Jewish ideas, where he can articulate to someone here like the Pope. Uh, so it's not, only, uh, it's not only political as an ambassador, but also on a level of tolerance that he believes we need to be working towards peace. And that religion and faith has a crucial role in that process towards peace. We cannot hand over, in Sachs's view, the peace process to secular politicians, right? This needs to happen from the level of faith, the people who will ultimately make peace. Um, okay, I, actually, I saw somebody write one of the things they wrote after his passing was, they thought if there was a Messiah alive, that he was the greatest option because he had the greatest potential as someone who could bring different sides together to work towards peace. Um, right. And this is based on the Talmudic idea that in every generation, the Mashiach is present. The question is whether the generation is ready for them, whether the, whether the generation is ready for one. And, you know, whether, whether what people here revere or dislike the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and my, he, he clearly was probably the, the, the closest person of that generation, of someone who could speak most broadly to, uh, to, the, to, uh, to the Jewish people. And I think Sachs might have been um, of, this, of this last generation as well, um, somebody could do it. Now, this is a quote that I quote all the time, um, and literally, and I think about on a daily basis for various reasons. And so if you've heard me quote it before, forgive me for that. If you've never read a Sachs book and you're, um, and you're interested in the, in the kind of the social justice Tikkun Olam side, then you would start with this book, To Heal a Fractured World. Here's what he says over here. There's no life without a task, no person without a talent, no place without a fragment of God's light waiting to be discovered and redeemed, no situation without its possibility of sanctification, no moment without its call. It may take a lifetime to learn how to find these things, but once we learn, we realize in retrospect that all it ever took was the ability to listen. When God calls, he does not do so by way of universal imperatives. Instead, he whispers our name, and the greatest reply, the reply of Avraham, is simply Hineni. Here I am, ready to heed your call to mend a fragment of your all-too-broken world. So remember, we just said a moment ago that Sachs thinks listening is, is so central, the power of listening. This is not only true in conflict and in dialogue. This is true of ethical life, listening to the voice of God. That is to say, it is not Kantian. He, he's, he's pushing back on Kant there. In Kant's categorical imperative, right, there is the just path. There is the ethical life. And here's what everyone should do in such a situation, right? In activists, whether it's a conservative activist or a, or a liberal activist, right, here is the bandwagon we should all be on. Here's what we should fight for, right? And Sachs says, no, no, no universal calling. Actually, you have to listen to find out where you need to bring your light in the world. It is a personal calling, right? The spiritual and the ethical intersect because there's so many causes, there's so many injustices, there's so much suffering. Where do I need to be in the world to respond to that? I need to learn how to hear my calling from God. It is a still, soft, it is a soft, quiet voice. 
that I need to learn to listen from? Now, that's a big question. How do you do that, right? Okay, so that is um, the intersection of his spiritual and ethical thought. Now, one of the major themes for Sachs is, is the vulnerable. So source four here, this emerges again from To Heal a Fractured World. Here's a few different quotes of his about the vulnerable. The message of the Hebrew Bible is that civilization survived. So he's gonna write, he's gonna write in a funny way for Jews because he wants Gentiles to read his books. So he's not gonna talk about Torah so much. He's gonna talk about the Hebrew Bible, right? He's gonna do a lot of, he doesn't use Jewish talk, right? He doesn't use Hebrew much. He doesn't do inside baseball. He wants Gentiles to read his stuff. He wants to be a public intellectual. He wants to be accessible to everyone. The message of the Hebrew Bible is that civilization survive, not by strength, but by how they respond to the weak, not by wealth, but by how they care for the poor, not by power, but by the concern for the powerless. To live the life of faith is to hear the cry of the afflicted, the lonely and marginal, the poor, the sick and the disempowered, and to respond. For the world is not yet mended, there is work still to do, and God has empowered us to do it with him, for him, and for his faith in us. To live the life of faith is to hear the cry of the afflicted. Oh, somehow that got in there twice. Sorry. To imitate God is to be alert to the poverty, suffering, and loneliness of others. Judaism is not a religion, as Karl Marx said, as an opium of the people. For opium desensitizes us to pain. The Bible sensitizes us to it. Right? So for Sachs, the religious person is someone who has their finger on the pulse of suffering, who is deeply responsive to injustice, who finds God in the call to responsibility to mend a broken world. And as he says over there, that Judaism um, is not a religion. This is a, an important point. It is not a faith community fundamentally, right? It is something far bigger than that. He says this many times in many different ways, that we are, we are not a religion. Whether he's making the case that we are a family, right? The Jewish people are a family. We're primarily a people, a community, a family, right? Whether he says we are, a, a, we are about a text and a tradition, right? But a religion means we have an ironed out system. God can be confined to a set of rules and texts, right? It, it, is, it is limiting. And so we're not a faith community. We're not a religion. Of course, we can call it that. He's not opposed to us using terms that people use, right? But he wants to push back on Karl Marx's idea that Judaism is primarily here to comfort us. Of course, as, as every clergy person says, right, um, the that, that the role of clergy is to comfort the afflicted, but also to afflict the comforted, which is to say that Judaism should be a source of comfort for those in trauma, right? Um, and it can be a great source. Those of us who are mourning, those of us who are suffering, right? Community can heal, right? Text learning can be a form of connectedness. Davening, prayer, tefillah can be a form of, of, of uh, a reuniting, uh, of healing, once again. Um, and so there is that place for that, and that's powerful. But ultimately, he says, no, nope, Marx is wrong. It's not an opiate, right? It is here to make us uncomfortable, to shake us, to make us hear suffering, to push us to do more, to be more, okay? Now, what's the role of God in all this? So this is where he's going to start to get a little controversial in some of his circles. Um, okay, biblical faith demands courage, courage. It is not for the faint-hearted, 
Its vision of the universe is anything but comfortable. The Hebrew Bible tells the long and often tense story of the childhood of humanity under the parenthood of God. But God does not want humankind to remain in childhood. He wants them to become adults, exercising responsibility and freedom. A weak parent seeks to control their children. A true parent seeks to relinquish control, which is why God never intervenes to protect us from ourselves. That means that we will stumble and fall, but only by so doing does a child learn to walk. God does not ask his children not to make mistakes. To the contrary, he accepts that in the Bible's own words, there is none on the earth so righteous as to do only good and never sin. God asks us only to acknowledge our mistakes and learn from them. Forgiveness is written into the structure of the universe. Okay, so why is this controversial? Well, because in Jewish theology, as you know, there are two, there are two polar opposites. Um, one, one realm says, God is in control of everything, omniscience, omnipotence. And because of that view, suffering is not a problem because suffering is not real suffering or we only have part of the picture. There's a bigger picture or there's olam haba, there's a next world, right? Suffering is not a problem. God is all powerful. God is benevolent. God is all good. God is all seeing. God is in control of everything. We call this hashgacha pratis, hashgacha pratit. This is one authentic Jewish theology. Right? God is in control of everything. Right? Um, we are, to some degree, puppets within the drama of God's creation and of God's beautiful world. And we can align ourselves with God's power, or we can choose not to submit. The, uh, the alternative Jewish theology is um, that God is actually uh, not omnipotent. The Rambam says God has limits to God's power. The Rambam says in Mornevuchim, God can't do things. Like God cannot produce another God. There can only be one. God cannot destroy God's self or replicate divinity um, in a sense. Uh, and, um, and, 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 and that because of retraction, God gives free will, which is not merely an illusion, but enables uh, God to limit God's own power. Now, Sachs falls out on the side. Um, got Sachs, if you go back to the image for a moment, Sachs, fa Sachs falls out on the side of, of Simsum, right? Now, for, for Hasidic thinkers, for Kabbalists, Simsum is an illusion. God didn't really retract God's self from the world. It's just an illusion so that people feel they have freedom, that making human enterprise feel meaningful. Um, as a gift, as a chesed for people to be alive and experience that. For the rationalist tradition, the Maimonidean, Maimonidean tradition, as opposed to the Kabbalistic tradition, freedom is real. It's real. The only reason a human enterprise has any, any real weight or value is because of, of the reality of free will. Sachs falls out on the rationalist side. That's why he's a philosopher. Not a, he's not a mystic, right? And so he believes God has retracted God's self through Tsimsum to create real spaces of human freedom. And that means that we don't look to God to solve our problems, right? We don't actually pray to God to intervene. Hashgacha pratis is minimalized as opposed to maximalized. We don't think that God is in control of everything. There's, thing called, there's things called the laws of nature, right? For, so what does that mean about tefillah? Why do I daven? Why does Sachs use a traditional liturgy? He's very clear about this. It is not because I want God to do these things. I am reinforcing in myself what I need to do. By saying, God, heal the sick, what I'm not really saying, maybe I'm hoping on some level that in some way God will intervene. Really, I, I can't have wishful thinking. 
I am, I am recommitting my work in this world to be a healer. I'm recommitting the power of community for us to hold each other, to, to hold that, right? The power of divine healing comes through our hands, our, our work, right? Yes. And that makes God greater, not lesser. Um, um, th- that makes God greater, not lesser. It doesn't minimize God's, God's, God by limiting God's power. It means God is humble to give, to give space to humans to do this work. Um, okay. Uh, by the way, just, just a reminder, while we'll have a dialogue and questions at the end, feel free to put in questions, agreements, disagreements, comments on, on, in the chat while you're, while you're waiting for that. Okay, so that's a little bit of, of, uh, of Sachs over there on God stepping back for human responsibility. Oh, and again, he relates that to parenting, right? The idea, you're a bad parent, Sachs would say, if your child is 40 years old and you're still controlling them. Right? You're a bad parent also if your child is two and you're not taking care of them. You're not keeping them safe. So parenting is about learning to step back just like the God model is about being very close. And, and that's history, right? In the Chumash, God intervenes. God splits the sea. God takes the Jews out of Egypt. God does public miracles. And it's not that God is still doing that and is hidden now in Sachs' idea, right? God is not doing that, right? For the mystics, God is still doing it all the time. My heart beats for the mystics because God is pumping it, right? I'm only alive at this moment because God's grace is giving me life. That's very powerful. For Heschel, also, right? Everything is, is, is miraculous, right? But for Sachs and the rationalists, no, God stepped back, right? This is the maturation of humanity and people die, not because God willed it, but because it's the tragedies of nature, the laws of nature, right? And so there's a lot to say about all that. Okay. So what do we do with suffering? This comes from the letter in the scroll, the letter in the scroll, very powerful book about, about why we should be Jewish. He says over here, Judaism begins not in wonder that the world is, but again, here's the idea of protest, but in protest that the world is not as it ought to be. It is in that cry, the sacred discontent, that Abraham's journey begins. The faith of Abraham Abraham begins in the refusal to accept either answer, for both contain a truth. And between them, there is a contradiction. The first says that if evil exists, God does not exist. The second says that if God exists, evil does not exist. But supposing both exist, supposing there are both the palace and the flames, at the heart of reality is a contradiction between order and chaos, the order of creation and the chaos we create. There is no resolution to this conflict at the level of thought. It can be resolved only at the level of action, only by making the world other than it is. When things are as they ought to be, then we have reached our destination. But that is not now. It was not now for Avraham, nor is it yet for us. So here's another case where he's, um, oh, a little more, sorry. Judaism is a uniquely restless faith. Jews are always traveling, dissatisfied with the status quo, and never quite merging with their environment. The Midrash suggests where and how these traits began. For Judaism, faith is cognitive dissonance, the discord between the world that is and the world as it ought to be. That tension has has been the energizing mainspring of Jewish life from the time of Avraham to today. So here's another case where Sachs is not um, an original thinker, but the most articulate version in many ways of, of ideas he's inherited. So here he is purely channeling Soloveitchik. Soloveitchik says over there, um, that we cannot resolve the problem of suffering. We're not going to be atheists who say clearly there's no God because there's suffering. And we're not going to be um, uh, uh, hyper-traditionalists that say suffering is fake. Actually, he says evil is real and pain is real. And we can't diminish that. So we're going to be humble. 
We're going to not resolve it theologically. What's our response to suffering? Soloveitchik says, it is purely in the realm of action, not in thought. My response to suffering is not philosophically resolving it. It is taking action to address it. And that's what Sachs is saying here also. The Jewish response to suffering, he argues, is not the reaffirmation of God's goodness, the reaffirmation of God's control. It is all the reaffirmation of God's faith in us to be moral agents to respond to it. Okay? Now, the other thing that emerges here is the issue of Jewish resiliency. Jewish resiliency. Go back for one second, please. Jewish resiliency in that if, if you were here for the VBM Daniel Gordis lecture, uh, which we talked about yesterday also, um, he, he, he said the key to Jewish resiliency is always having our finger on trauma, right? This is in some ways, it, we could classify this as, as a conservative view. It is a past-looking view. For Israel to survive, it needs to always be aware of its threats. For the Jewish people to survive in America, we have to be concerned with our threats. However, however people call those things, assimilation, intermarriage, um, uh, anti-Semitism, right, anti-Israel sentiment. We have to be aware of the threats to us internally and externally. That's what Daniel Gordis and many others suggest is the key to Jewish resiliency, our finger on the pulse of trauma. Sachs, his hope and resiliency is progressive. Again, I don't mean that purely in a political sense, but it is in protesting status quo, right? We want a better world. Judaism helps us get there by imagining a better future, by progressing towards a better world. And the Jewish role is not to assimilate, but to bring Jewish wisdom to protest the status quo as it exists. Okay, let's keep going. Here's a, we'll take a little break from those ideas and move to love. What is love? What is love in Jewish thought? Uh, Sachs and many others, Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch and many others are very clear about what love is. It is not romantic. It is not emotional. Yes, it is that, but primarily love is deed. What is chesed? Normally we translate chesed as kindness, acts of kindness, but chesed can also be translated as he does here, as love. Not love as emotion or passion, but love expressed as deed. Theologians define chesed as covenant love. Covenant is the bond by which two parties pledge themselves to one another, each respecting the freedom and the integrity of the other. Chesed, love, is an act of engagement. Justice is best administered without emotion. <laughs> chesed exists only in virtue of emotion. Empathy and sympathy, feeling with and feeling for. We act with kindness because we know what it feels like to be in need of kindness. We comfort the mourners because we know what it is to mourn. Chesed requires not detached rationality, but emotional intelligence. Societies are only human and humanizing when they are a community of communities built on face-to-face -face encounters, covenantal relationships. Emmanuel Levinas was right to see the concept of a face as fundamental to our humanity. Society is faceless. Chesed is a relationship of face-to-face. -face. The Pentateuch, again, you know, it's not common that an Orthodox rabbi talks about the Pentateuch, but this is about him wanting to be widely read and accessible. That's a very big goal for him. The Pentateuch rep repeatedly emphasizes that we cannot see God face-to-face. It follows that we can only see God in the face of another. Here again, he's channeling Buber. He's channeling Levinas. He's not saying something original, but saying it very beautifully. And so this idea here, right, is the idea that um, of what love is about. What is it? There's his wedding. <laughs> mazel tov, mazel tov. That was 50 years of marriage. They got married in, uh, in 1970. She's a, she's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful uh, person. Um, and there's a lot to say about her. 
as well. Um, and so what, what do you say at a Jewish wedding? It's very unromantic. You read the ketubah. What do you read? What, you read the ketubah. And what is the ketubah? It's so romantic. We're going to talk about the obligations to feed each other, to give sexual pleasure to each other. Ona'ah. We're going to talk about um, uh, taking care of someone when they're sick, right? We're going to talk about my physical, legal obligations to the other. Love as deed. Love as deed. Um, rather than, you know, rather than love as an emotion. This is a very powerful idea in Jewish thought. What are the three most, uh, what are the three commandments of love in the Torah? I mean, this is obvious, but, uh, but we'll say it in the name of Sachs because we're here to honor, honor him. Okay, love of God, ahavat Hashem. Love of your fellow, particularly your fellow Jew, and love of the stranger. And Sachs makes the point over and over that the third is repeated over and over again, is more important than the first two. You love God, you love your fellow Jew, but 36 times and more, love the stranger, the gear love the stranger. And that's why he's going to say the greatest opportunity that faiths can play in the world is conquering the fear of the other for us to come to love the other, the stranger. And in doing so, we will find God. That will be our commonplace in the interfaith space to make the divine manifest in the world is by loving, uh, loving the stranger. Um, Okay, uh, again, each of these sources can be a whole unpack. Now we're going to get to a little po polemics. Now, Jonathan Sachs, um, uh, he doesn't like polemics because he wants to be popular. Now, I'm not critiquing him here by saying he wants to be popular. Um, uh, he, uh, uh, because if you don't want to be popular, you say controversial things, right? Meaning you'll be popular among the people who agree, but you know you're going to rock the boat on the other side. Right? You're going to be reform and you're going to critique orthodoxy. You're going to be orthodox, you're going to critique reform. You're going to be liberal and critique the conservatives, conservative and critique the liberals, right? You're going to lose half, half the people. Sachs doesn't want that. He wants everyone to like him. He wants the non-orthodox to like him. He wants the orthodox to like him. He wants the Gentiles to read him. And so he doesn't want to engage in polemics, societal critiques. He wants to write poetics, right? Things that are going to be inspiring, things that are going to, are going to defend Judaism, defend the Jewish people, right? But occasionally he'll engage in polemics. So here he's going to critique tikkun olam Judaism, right? Which is critiquing, uh, to some degree, the liberal establishment, to some degree, non-orthodoxy. But he's not going to be explicit about it. So here's how he's going to write that. And here, his audience is the Orthodox Union. He's writing this in 1997 in the, in, in the West Coast Convention. Speaks right the OU as a branch in LA. Here's what he says. Once the halachic system mandated a serious social responsibility, but the authoritative nature of Jewish law has given way to aimless or haphazard performance of whatever the person of our time considers important to do. Accordingly, the reform movement will suggest or even instruct its adherents what political measures to support while hardly requiring any ritual obedience. Um, okay, so that's largely true, but certainly a little unfair and oversimplifying also. It is largely true that the reform movement um, is more passionate about, uh, about uh, political opportunities, social action, than about ritual observance, such as, uh, and here's an example, the reform movement is not going to treat verses in the Torah literally when it comes to ritual, that I'm obligated to do X, Y, Z right? But it will take literally ethical uh, verses in the Torah, right? It says, love the stranger, that's God speaking, 
right? It says, it says, here's how you remove chametz from on Pesach. Okay, that is Jewish tradition. It's not necessarily the voice of God. And so this is kind of where Dennis Prager comes in, right? Dennis Prager, um, a, a conservative uh, uh, thinker who is not uh, observant um, as a traditional Jew, will say the ethics of the Torah are God's voice. The rituals, not so much, right? And so that's kind of an interesting thing. Or like um, someone in my family, I don't need to name who, someone in my family who's a Reformed Jew who, um, who believes the Ten Commandments are the voice of God. Do not kill. God said that at Har Sinai, right? right? Fast on Yom Kippur? Not so much. I might fast culturally as a Jew, but I'm not obligated by God to do that necessarily. Like, right? I, I don't think God commands these rituals. That's too small picture, right? So anyways, so again, uh, but... The, Lots of Reformed Jews take ritual observance seriously. Lots of Reformed rabbis take it seriously. Lots of them are not so engaged in politics. So again, largely it is a critique, um, and, and, and the critique could go the opposite way, right? In terms of um, orthodoxy, very strict on ritual obedience, you know, a little less so on the tikkun olam side here. But largely it's true, even though it's, it's a little unfair to both sides. Okay, let's keep going. On many issues, we are told that, oh, no, 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 sorry, I'm still in the middle of that source. On many issues, we are told that solidarity with the easy left is our Jewish duty under God. But there is no coherent standard for changing Jewish law except the spirit of the times, an epoch that is an epoch that is hardly worthy of emulation. We want Jews to line up with all the smug and self-confident liberals rather than stake out original and dangerous alternatives. All this begins, I believe, with distorting tikkun olam. A teaching about compromise, sharpening, trimming, and humanizing rabbinic law, a, my a mystical doctrine about putting God's world back together again. This strange and half-understood notion becomes a huge umbrella under which our petty moral concerns and political panaceas can come out of the rain. Our world does need repair. So do we. Our much-vaunted spirituality will be tested in our politics. So here, Sachs is doing, again, what he does very rarely, engage in a harsh polemic. He says, you know, he's not interested in Reform Judaism. He's not interested in Tikkun Olam Judaism. He thinks it's a watered-down, oversimplified version of what Judaism is about, which is merely bandwagoning on liberal causes. Okay? So, um, okay, so we can engage in some counter-arguments or some pushback, whatever the case is. Um, but that's, that's, that is, uh, and again, he's speaking to the OU. He's not writing that in the books that he wants to be circulated to the masses. But here is part of his... Uh, of his sense, um, where he thinks there's one one more authentic path. Oh my goodness, there's so much still to do, and I'm and uh, uh, it's you know there's just so much to say. So I'm sorry. I know I'm for some people I'm going too slow, for some people I'm speaking too fast, um, and I just want to do justice to this. So I'm, I apologize, and 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 I do want to get to conversations and questions. Again, I encourage you to write on the side over there your thoughts, questions, agreements, disagreements. Um, uh, by the way, uh, I, wa I want to say one thing about this idea of love as deed. So you, you don't you don't call Rav, you don't call Jonathan Sachs a, a, a tzaddik. You don't call him a tzaddik, not because he wasn't righteous. God forbid, you know he was he was a very righteous human being, but because there's different paradigms of of Jewish excellence. One one paradigm of, of excellence is a tzaddik. The tzaddik is like the tzaddik of Yerushalayim. He goes from prison cell to prison cell, visiting Jews in prison. He goes from nursing home to nursing home, visiting seniors who are isolated, right? It's the person who sits in empathy uh, with people who are suffering day in and day out. It's the pastor who's, who, who comforts people, right? Um, it's the person who, who sacrifices so much to give their tzedakah, who holds up people. That's the tzaddik. It's the bal chesed, the giving, the giving one. Then there is the 
the, the Talmud Chacham. There's the scholar. Now, the scholar can be a tzaddik, but usually it's two different archetypes, right? It's two different archetypes um, to, be, to be the scholar or to be the tzaddik because the scholar spends their time in thought, right? Sachs was primarily not a tzaddik in the sense of uh, how he gave his time. Uh, he wasn't a pastor. He, didn't, he wasn't spending his time primarily sitting with people. He's very aware um, that that wasn't his strength um, uh, or his calling or his talents. He wanted to be a thinker. However, there are stories that emerge of how he does that. I'll, I'll share one that a friend told me recently. A friend's father was dying, and Sachs was like his hero. He, Sachs was, was like the best thinker imaginable, the modern Orthodox hero for this modern, modern Orthodox person, um, of someone who bridged the best of philosophy and the best of Jewish thought, someone who bridged the authenticity of the tradition and being a, a part of the contemporary world. And, and they said, listen, it would be like a dying wish to talk to him. And, and apparently the story that on his deathbed, uh, they, they, they worked the channels that Rabbi Sachs uh, spent a, a, a significant amount of time uh, talking with him on his deathbed on the phone, uh, fulfilling his, his dream. Um, now, as someone, as a, as a rabbi who gets literally uh, hundreds of messages a week from around the world, myself, of requests, will you do my conversion? Will you do my wedding? Will you teach this class? I mean, things that come in from all directions. Um, uh, I, I'm aware what it means to, uh, to turn down lots of things because it, it's a mission creep. It's a distraction from the work you're trying to do in the world. And how do you balance kind of being a servant of the Jewish people while also like being focused on your mission? It's a, it's a, it's a challenge. And so Sachs, uh, and I know firsthand and from many stories, turns down countless requests for interviews, for classes, for engagements. I mean, the amount of money he would charge, this is not a critique amount of money he would charge to do a speaking engagement, I mean, is, is enormous amounts of money. In fact, once I was in LA where they wanted to bring him in, he required they fly in his choir. They wanted to bring in the British, this choir of, of 20 people that had to be flown in also. Um, and so, um, and so it's very hard to, you know, to get his time, but he, but he showed up for this guy and this, this wasn't a major philanthropist is my understanding. It wasn't like, okay, a philanthropist you show up for, you give them three hours because they're going to support my work. That's what you have to do. Right. And many, many large rabbis will only do that for philanthropists because that's who you give your time to. You got to sustain your work. Right. But some guy who's calling, but he did that. And that's what it's like. That's what it's like. Okay. All right. Let's keep going here. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's so much to say. It should have been a three part series, but uh, okay. Uh, on corporate responsibility, the potential of power. And I'm going to move a little quicker now. Today, corporations wield immense power, larger in some cases than entire nations. The international corporation is increasingly calling into question the concept of national sovereignty. By transferring production to other countries, a corporation can evade lo local legislation. By outsourcing many of its operations, it can escape accountability. Despite all the excuses, however, one principle remains. With power comes responsibility. Judaism cannot accept the principle that markets, business, and corporations are a value-free zone. They are major features of our social environment. And the biblical concept of covenant tells us that we are uh, severe, severally, severally, or severely, severally, no, severally, I'm not used to that word, severally, and collectively responsible for the environment. We shape and share. No one articulated this idea with more passion than the prophets of ancient Israel. Here is Amos. Okay, then, and there's, there's Amos if you want to see it. Okay, but here's one of the cases where um, 
uh, where he, as we saw, he will engage in conservative polemics and he'll engage in liberal polemics. He cannot stand the conservative idea that the market itself should be unregulated or uncontrolled, right? He thinks it is clear that we have market regulation. The market itself is not moral and corporations themselves cannot be guided merely by the idea of maximizing profits, even though that is taken for granted in corporate life, that our responsibility primarily is to stakeholders, to maximize profits. The ethical responsibility, the, the corporate responsibility is, is pervasive, and the welfare society is something that has to put a check upon, upon the markets. Okay, so the, 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 he does offer some polit political polemics like this. Okay, faith in action. Source 10 here. In Judaism, faith is not acceptance, but protest against the world that is in the name of the world that is not yet, but ought to be. Faith lies not in the answer, but the question. And the greater the human being, the more intense the question. The Bible is not metaphysical opium, but it's opposite. Its aim is not to transport the believer to a private heaven. Instead, its impassioned, sustained desire is to bring heaven down to earth. Until we have done this, there is still work to do. So this is a very uh, dominant 20th century Jewish idea that, um, that we do not make olam haba, the, the world to come, the end point. But rather, rather than trying to transport this world to that world, we try to bring that world here. We want to repair this world. He, he constantly is stressing tikkun olam. He just wants to frame that differently. He wants to talk about to heal a fractured world. It's actually kind of interesting. He wants to move away from the Hebrew phrase. He wants to call it hearing heal a fractured world rather than tikkun olam. Um, and he believes this is faith in action. Once again, this is the idea of protest. Here you can see him. Um, that's a rabbi to his right. He's someone who was taught for VBM. Uh, rabbi Dr. Alone Goshen Gottstein. He's one of the leading, uh, one of the leading uh, interfaith um, uh, activists and scholars. He lives in Jerusalem, and Sachs would participate in his programs. And he wrote a nice moving tribute about uh, how we've lost our greatest teacher with Jonathan Sachs. And you can see here, this is going to push the buttons of of uh, of the Haredi establishment. Jonathan Sachs, okay, this is a whole topic in itself, his relationship to the Haredi establishment. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is clearly and devoutly modern Orthodox. However, he is also very clear that he will bow to the power of the Haredi establishment anytime there is a pushback. And so um, it is important to him, right? So if you think of someone like myself, like I am, I'm very happy being marginal, marginal and fringe to the Orthodox establishment because of an, uh, what I view as an authentic message. Rabbi Sachs takes a, a fundamentally different approach where he thinks remaining a part of mainstream Orthodoxy is crucial and he will dim his authenticity time and time again in order to, to honor that, that need. Um, but he will, push, he will push those boundaries to, as far as he is able to. The, these, these people up there to the Haredi establishment are idolaters. They are idolaters. Christianity is idolatry, right? Buddhism is idolatry. Hinduism is idolatry. All of these faiths, they're not going to say Islam is idolatry. Islam is, is the only faith out there that it would be almost impossible to halakhically call idolatry um, because of their, the purity of their monotheism. Now, that doesn't mean Jews can be, be Muslim, right? But that, that engaging in a mosque or engaging with Islam is fundamentally different than engaging with all these other, other faiths which have a polytheism or engage in statues or, or other things. Now, there's a lot to say about idolatry. But Sachs is up there in dialogue with them, hugging them, talking with them, face-to-face -face with the Pope, 
listening to the ideas of Hinduism, honoring them, telling them they're bringing godliness into the world, and that's going to push a lot of buttons. Okay, progress and dignity. Progress and dignity. Not all at once, but ultimately, it, Judaism, made extraordinary claims. It said that every human being, regardless of color, culture, class, or creed, was in the image and likeness of God. The supreme power intervened in history to liberate the supremely powerless. Again, here he's talking about God's intervention in the past, not in the current. A society is judged by the way it treats its weakest and most vulnerable members. Life is sacred. Murder is both a crime and a sin right? Because God is within every human being. Between people, there should be a covenantal bond of righteousness and justice, mercy and compassion, forgiveness and love. Though in its early books, the Hebrew Bible commanded war, within centuries, its prophets, Isaiah and, and Micha, became the, the first voices to speak of peace as an ideal. A day would come, they said, when the people of the earth would turn their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, and wage war no more. According to the Hebrew Bible, Abrahamic monotheism entered the world as a rejection of imperialism and the use of force to make some men masters and other slaves. Okay, now uh, uh, um, Sachs has a, a big commitment, an idea, and this this he made particularly uh, 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 clear leading up to the last election. Um, he was pushing back against Haredi rabbis in America who said you have to vote for the current president. And he said, you're making a really big mistake by, by um, as religious figures by talking politics. He did not make any intervention as to who one should vote for, but, but was critiquing the Haredi rabbis in America who said, clearly, if you love the Jewish people, if you love Israel, you're going to vote for the current president. Um, but this was rooted in a longstanding position that he had, that politics and religion should not um, intersect. Now, this is, of course, an unsustainable view, and he himself intellectually, I'm sure, would acknowledge that. It's a political view rather than an intellectual view, because we know shika kohoda, silence is acquiescence. To be silent on an issue is a political choice in halacha, right? If you choose to be silent, you're making a political, you're making a political choice. And every language choice is itself a political choice. And he's also aware that he made exceptions to what's politics. What is politics? Um, what are some exceptions? Um, uh, he is very clear that he will speak out politically about anti-Semitism, very clear that he'll speak out uh, on behalf of Israel. Those are, of course, political engagement. He will critique, he will critique uh, politicians in Britain who he thinks crosses lines on these issues. Um, and also, he spoke out against um, uh, the, the rights of civil marriage for gay folks. Um, he does it v as compassionately as one can while holding that view, where he says he's aware that gay people were killed in the Holocaust. He's aware of gay trauma, uh, trauma that happens in the LGBT community. And yet he has to oppose, he has to oppose the rights. Now, where would he have, where was he in 2020? It's unclear. This was uh, over a decade ago that he held such a view. But he does view himself as a defender of traditional faith in public society. Um, and so, uh, and so here he does make critiques of the nation state and, and, and critiques of hawkism, right? In the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, you can't place him exactly. He is definitely not a pacifist who thinks Israel should not defend herself fully. And he's definitely not a hawk that thinks the IDF should go to town 
against terrorism and any supporters of terrorism. He is a big proponent of peace process and of dialogue, and also a major advocate for Israel, Israel's right to defend itself. And so he critiques this stuff and engages in politics, but also critiques those who talk about politics. And I think primarily there, he is, his polemic is against twofold. The Haredi world, who's by and large conservative and says, you must vote conservative. That is Das Torah. That's what the Torah says to do. And the reform world that says, Tikkun Olam, to be a Jew means you're liberal. He, he doesn't like those approaches. He, he, wants, he wants the middle approach there. Okay. Man, oh man, we're running out of time. Um, and we're, we're uh, only two thirds through the sources. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't normally do this, but I want to ask everyone's permission to go over time. Of course, if you have to leave, please do. But um, can, I, can I ask permission to go over time? I can't go so much over time, but there, there's a, okay. So let's skip over this source. This source is basically, uh, he talks about humility. Um, and, and it's a good source. If you want to see it, I'll send it to you, how greatness is found in humility. And, to, and, and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was an unof. He was a humble person. Now, it's easy to think that someone who has a big platform and writes a lot and speaks a lot is not humble. Because if you're humble, you should be quiet and hide away. But that's not, that's not the, Jewish, the mainstream Jewish idea of humility. Humility doesn't mean don't actualize your potential. It means carry yourself, know your place and know your space and carry yourself softly um, with the honor of God in place. And so he was definitely an anav who lived with Anivut. If you listen to him, him speak, he speaks softly. If you listen to how he engages in critiques, he doesn't do them harshly. He does them relatively softly. I and mean, I brought one of his polemics here that was a, came off a little more harsh, but generally he's, he's, he's softer. Um, and, um, and, and when he disagrees with something controversial, he's going to do that as softly as, as he can. Um, okay. Um, okay, let's keep going here. Peacemaking, peacemaking. I just see so much effort at peacemaking taking place at the very elite levels where you know egos can be ra rather larger than they need to be, and no one is really willing to lose for the sake of long-term winning for both of us. Sometimes I think, what would happen if we generated real conversations at the grassroots level between the people whose lives are really affected? One of the most powerful groups of peace in the Middle East is a group of Israeli parents and Palestinian parents who have lost children. We have not yet found a way of meshing the political society with the civil society, and that is a big challenge. It's doable, but you're bringing two very different cultures together, one that is very used to solving problems through power and one that knows that power is the worst possible thing you can bring to bear. So how you bring those two cultures together, I don't know, but you have, you'll have to do it in the long run if you want to make peace. So again, Okay, by the way, this is such a remarkable interview. If, you, if you've never listened to the podcast with Krista Tippett on being, it, it itself is a, she, she has a, she's, she's a source of great spiritual wisdom. Um, and Jonathan Sachs, it's really an amazing interview to hear what he sounds like, how he honors Judaism so deeply and so, with such sophistication, speaking in public society in, in the interfaith realm, where he does not water down Judaism. He speaks from a deeply authentic Jewish place, but brings honor to other groups and factions as well and what he's doing. Now, part of what he's saying over there, once again, is that, that peace is going to come through faith. He is a great defender, not only of Judaism, but of faith, um, faith at large. And, um, and he thinks he's not naive that the political realm will have to be a part of process. He doesn't reject nation states. He doesn't reject democracy and elections and people in power, but he thinks those two are at odds. The realm of politics is about the realm of power. The realm of religion is understanding that power is corrupt. How you will bring together this um, civic society with this, um, what did he call it over there? 
the uh, the political society with the with the civil society is the great one of the greatest challenges of our time. Okay, now and part of it is why religion is about uncertainty rather than certainty. Go here's here's a very short one. Faith is not certainty, rather it is the courage to live with uncertainty. So what does the relativist say? The relativist say it says we know nothing, right? So don't engage in faith. What does the fundamentalist say? I have the answers. I have certainty. Follow me. Let me bring you to my truth. That this is where Sachs will break from um, what some would call the Kiruv world. The Kiruv world is going to say, we have the truth. Now we have to convince more people of our truth. And Jonathan Sachs wants to be a great defender and apologist and advocate for Judaism and for traditional Judaism. But he also wants to say, I don't have the truth, right? Yes, I want you to come closer, but not to a truth, but to an engagement, right? that to be a person of faith is the courage to live with the uncertainty of where God is, of how God works, of what the Torah asks us to do. Okay, here's on difference. We encounter God in the face of a stranger. That, that I believe, is the Hebrew Bible's single greatest and most counterintuitive contribution to ethics. God creates difference. Therefore, it is in one who is different that we meet God. Okay, this will play out again. So the dignity of difference, what he's doing over there, by the way, he had, a, he had a good connection with Chabad. And one of the reasons he had a good connection with Chabad, once again, was that he, he, he wasn't going to rock that boat. Um, he wants to remain on the inside. But the other reason is he attributes his entering the rabbinate to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. When he met with Rabbi Soloveitchik, he said Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, inspired him to think as a Jew. But when he met the, 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 met the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he said he inspired him to lead as a Jew. To, and he ultimately says he became a rabbi because of him. He was the oldest of four, of four sons. His parents were not educated. He said his father had no formal education. And so it was totally unclear he would enter a path of leadership. Everyone was surprised. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe told him to do it, and he said he did it, like a, like a shiliach. And so the, the Chabad movement loves him, and he shows a lot of reverence to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Um, now, in the dignity of difference, what we just quoted from is where he lays out his theology. Now, this is very, very important. On the intersection, you can't understand Sachs without understanding this is one of his five biggest ideas. The intersectionality of universalism and particularism, right? That he thinks, um, he thinks, here, uh, let's, um, he thinks that, um, that uh, we want to critique liberal Judaism because we need particularism. We need to return to ritual and our particularity as Jews in the most authentic and deep way. And he critiques uh, the traditionalist elements by saying we need universalism. We need to love the stranger. We need to engage in interfaith work. We need to be a part of modern society. And he thinks those two must deeply intersect, which resonates very deeply for me. And so, too, on the interfaith realm, what he argues is that we can't have a multicultural melting pot. Where we, dis where we dismiss our difference to come together. Rather, we bring our difference together. That is what enhances our relationship. I don't come to you as a human and bracket my Judaism. I bring my Judaism into that sphere, into that space. So here, now here's why this is very important. Uh, this is another case where he bows to the Haredi establishment. He wrote this in the first edition of The Dignity of Difference, and the Haredi rabbis made him delete it in the second edition. So he took it out. He took it out. No one creed has a monopoly on spiritual truth. Now, to some of us, this may be an obvious idea, 
But this challenges um, the Jewish thinking among some that Judaism has the sole truth. Sachs did not think Judaism had the sole truth, but he had to remain within the Haredi establishment to, to, to take this out. He says the radical transcendence of God in the Hebrew Bible means nothing more nor less than that there is a difference between God and religion. God is universal. Religions are particular. In the course of history, God has spoken to mankind in many languages, through Judaism to Jews, Christianity to Christians, Islam to Muslims. So to many of you, this might not be controversial at all, the idea of multiple revelations. But Sachs had to delete this. He was forced to delete this because what he's ultimately saying there is Christianity is the voice of God for Christians. Islam is the voice of God for Muslims, right? God speaks in different ways to different peoples. Judaism, Har Sinai, is not the only revelation. Obviously, very controversial uh, in the Orthodox world, and thus he's forced to delete that and backtrack, and he does public tshuva. He has to apologize publicly for having believed such things. Um, okay, so a lot to say about that. Now, he is a defender of God. You can listen to him debate Richard Dawkins. It's, it, it's on YouTube. He's going to, he's going to publicly debate uh, like David Wolpe does, but he's going to do it very differently. He is going to defend God. He views that as part of his role as a defender of faith. He's going to debate uh, atheism. Um, so here's, here's one thing he says over here. It is far more demanding to believe that God summons us to responsibility, that he asks us to fight for justice, equality, and human dignity, and that he holds us accountable for what we do, than to believe that there is no meaning to human existence other than one we invent for ourselves, no ultimate truth, no absolute moral standards, and no one to whom we will have to give an account of our lives. Fifty years of reflection on this issue have led me to conclude that it is atheism that is morally and existentially the easy option. And I say this having known and studied with some of the greatest atheists of our time. That is not to say that I'm critical of atheists. To the contrary, in a secular age, it is the default option. It's what makes most sense. That is why now more than at any other time in the past 2,000 years, it takes courage to have and live by religious faith. Okay, now for many, oh, religion is the easy answer. It's the open of the masses. Oh, believe in God. You're, you're a simpleton. You're a simpleton. I'm courageous because I'm an atheist. I'm going to reject the norms of, of religion. I'm going to be countercultural. He says, no, no, it's the opposite. The athe atheism is the easy answer. You can't see God in this world. This is a broken world of suffering and injustice. How easy it is to be an atheist. Deny God because, because it makes no sense to believe in God, right? The courage is to still affirm God and God's message in a world that is so clearly, so clearly uh, atheistic. And so he views himself as a defender of Judaism, a defender of faith, a defender of God, wants to defend atheists. And in defending God, he views himself as defending justice, because he, he, he believes um, in, the, in, the, in the platonic idea, that's to say the idea of Plato, that a, um, a polytheist or an atheist, or let's just say polytheist for now, is, is a relativist, because if there's multiple gods, there's multiple truths. A monotheist says there's one God, there's one moral authority, there's one truth. And so believing in God is an affirmation of justice. Okay. We're moving towards the end here. A few more things I want to pop in before we move the conversation. Music. We haven't said anything about culture. Lots to say about culture. Here's just one. Music is not an escape for me at all. It is a way of re-engaging with the world. I sometimes, in fact, quite often feel depressed with the sheer difficulty with some of the tax tasks that I've set for myself. Whenever I fall into the kind of temporary despair, music just lifts me up 
and allows me to go back fighting into the world. So he is someone who talks about depression. And I don't know if he was depressed or not. He wasn't public about that. He died of cancer, but he doesn't talk about this very much. This was his third battle with cancer. In his younger years, he had two other battles with cancer, um, which he survived from, obviously. Um, and this was a very short battle. I think it was announced uh, only two weeks uh, before he passed that he had cancer. In any case, um, he talks about the power of music to, uh, to pull him out of despair and depression, okay? The responsibility is on us, a refusal to give up on your deepest ideals, but a refusal likewise to say in a world still disfigured by evil that the Messiah has, not, has yet come and the world is saved. There is work still to be done. The journey is not yet complete and it depends on us. Who, we, we who know, who now, all too briefly stride upon the stage of time. So if, I, if you had to give oversimplified version of, of Sachs's ideas, one of the top five would be human responsibility. What the Torah is ultimately about is about us taking human responsibility, Jewish responsibility for ideas, for the vulnerable, for the world. The responsibility is not on God. Prayer is not the answer. The responsibility is upon us. Um, okay. Um, uh, okay, a, a last few ones. What is, actually, let's skip over, let's, in the interest of time, let's skip over this next one. What is Torah? He talks about Torah and science. He has a great book on the on Torah relationship to science. We're doing a year of VBM this year of learning Torah and science, so we'll come back to that quote. Here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's our last one. Learning universalism from the Holocaust. The Holocaust should be able to unite the world faiths around three fundamental, fundamental principles. Firstly, the dignity and sanctity of every human life as the image of God. Secondly, the covenant of human solidarity, which we call the covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter nine, although it doesn't matter what theological basis you give. The truth is we all are responsible for one another, the covenant of human solidarity. And then thirdly, the most difficult but poignant remark of Martin Luther King, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. When our friends are in trouble, we must not be silent. Okay, and, and here in this last one, he just talks about his, his own deficiencies. This is one of his signs of humility. I'm, not, I'm just not a people person. He, this is a very, very fascinating interview. I really appreciate this a lot, where he talks about his deficiencies. I'm just not a people person. I have a passion for ideas. And what he's talking about over there is, and this is where we can be gentle with, with some critiques, perhaps, uh, that, that might be, involve uh, Jonathan Sachs's leadership, where he says, I'm not a people person. Right, I'm, I'm just not good at that. I'm not good at sitting with people, talking with people, um, you know, figuring that stuff out. I'm, I'm really a philosopher. And so he wasn't the kind of chief rabbi who was building the British Jewry. He wasn't building institutions and building schools. I mean, he was doing some of that, of course. I mean, it's building schools and institutions and, and giving strength to rabbis in the field. Of course he was doing some of that. Um, but he wants to be a global ambassador. He is not speaking to British Jewry as much as Hindus, and he's speaking to Christians, and he's speaking to Jews around the world. He wants to speak to the world, not just to British Jewish communities. He's not as interested in building British Jewry, although that's part of his job, as much as that. And so he's not going to sit with people as much as he wants to be in his armchair, thinking and writing and teaching and doing podcasts, whatever the case is. So he's aware of that. And that, that's an, an empowering message for us. He says for us to take responsibility. Each of us has to find our own talents, our own calling, and understand we can't do everything. We can't do all the work of the world. We can do our work. Okay. Whew. I never talked that long straight, and I'm sorry. That was so much of my voice. That was over an hour of me sharing 
his quotes and unpacking them just a little bit. So let's hear from you. And I'm sorry, again, we went over time. But let's hear your thoughts, your questions, your agreements, your disagreements, whatever it is. And um, uh, feel free to unmute yourself now. And for those of you who are not in the Zoom, but you're in the Facebook Live, AJ will pass along your messages as well. Okay, questions, thoughts, agreements, disagreements, please. Critiques, anything. I have a question. Yes, please. For, for those of us who haven't read um, much of his works, what book would you recommend as perhaps the single best introduction to his thought and his philosophy? Okay, Stephen, it depends on your interest. So, okay. so, um, so um, if you merely want to – if I understand your question correctly, you want to best understand Sachs' thinking, then I can uh -huh. try to answer that. But if your question is, I'm really interested in this realm of his thought, then I can point you more particularly. To start with, let's just say his, his general thinking about Torah and, and um, general okay. thinking about yeah, Torah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for that. So, um, wow, there's so many. Okay. So <laughs> I, I think that um, to heal a fractured world. To Heal a Fractured World is really going to tie together his ideas of human responsibility, his, 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 his idea of what it means to engage in tikkun olam, his idea how all of that work is Jewishly rooted. Now, if one's interest was the interfaith realm, it would be the dignity of difference. It's how we engage in a complex, diverse world. If one was interested in the ideas of hope, it would be the politics of hope or the persistence of faith. If one is interested in denominational pluralism, it's going to be one people. Now, let me unpack this a little bit. Here's what he says over there. And um, this is going to make some, some Orthodox people unhappy because he goes too far and, and many non-Orthodox people unhappy because he doesn't go far enough. He, he creates three models, inclusivity, exclusivity, and pluralism. He says Judaism is not exclusive right? He doesn't think we push people away. He rejects the Haredi approach of building up higher walls and hiding away, he, uh, pushing out other Jews. And he rejects the idea that we reject modernity and we push away people from converting or from dialogue. He also rejects pluralism. He rejects the idea of multiple truths. He rejects non-orthodoxy as being true. He rejects other faiths as being capital T true. Um, he thinks there's one, one truth with space for other tolerance, and he calls this inclusivity. It, we should be inclusive. Think about Chabad. Chabad is an anomaly in the ultra-Orthodox world because m the mainstream ultra-Orthodox approach among Hasidic groups is separation, right? Babavar Hasidim or Satmar Hasidim aren't out in the streets trying to engage people to become Satmar. The only two Hasidic groups in the ultra-Orthodox world that do outreach are Breslov and Lubavitch, right? So those are not pluralistic groups. They are inclusive. That is to say, we have the truth, and you're welcome to join us. We invite you into the Chabad house. We're going to do everything Chabad. We don't think other ways are true, but we are going to be inclusive. Come have a schnapps with us. Come have a meal with us. You're welcome to come out. That's not me critiquing it, right? I, I, I'm, there, 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 is, there is an authentic Jewish approach to say we have the truth. No one else is a part of it. There's an authentic Jewish approach to say we have the truth, but we're going to include you in it. And there's an authentic Jewish approach to say, actually, we don't have the truth. We're pluralists. There's many different paths to truth. Sachs is an inclusivist, he argues. So anyways, that, that falls out in the dignity of difference. If you want to see okay. his, his Torah commentaries, this comes out in Covenant and Conversation, in the Koran Saxidurim, in, in the Crisis and Covenant. 
Okay, thank you for that question, Stephen. Okay. Someone else. Questions, thoughts, agreements, disagreements, please. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Um, Hi, I Shirley. I run a, a meeting for women called Women in Diversity. We have a few Jewish members and we have some Muslim members. We have a Sikh come and join us a couple of times. Primarily, though, it's Christians of one brand or other or people that are mad at the Catholic Church because of clergy issues, as you understand. But uh, this is very enlightening for me, and I'm going to uh, run, not walk, to get a hold of the book you just mentioned, because I want to talk about uh, polarization in our next meeting, but my uh, computer just crashed, so we'll be on Zoom in December, <laughs> by invitation only, and for women only at this time. But thank you, it was a wonderful presentation, and I took pictures of your text up on my screen, so that until I can get a hold of the books, at least I have the ideas, and thank you so much. Okay, great. Thank you. And, and so, and let me say one thing about that issue itself. Um, he he does not want to be viewed as an ideologue within liberal ideas. So he's never going to call himself a feminist. Um, he's also not going to be on the front lines of pushing for women's inclusion in orthodoxy. However, it is told in countless stories from orthodox feminists that he did everything he could to encourage them to grow in their leadership those who are studying to be Orthodox women rabbis, for example, of course, most of Orthodox reject such an idea, but there is a progressive Orthodox idea of, of rabbinical schools for Orthodox women. And he encouraged those women in their leadership. He's not publicly going to defend it or advocate for it because he wants to stay in good standing where he is. And so um, he is for, for feminists, he's going to leave something lacking in that he's not going to publicly be an advocate, but behind the scenes, he's going to do everything he can to encourage and support women in their leadership, whether they're Chabad and they're not going to be feminists, but have a different kind of model, whether they're going to be progressive Orthodox, whatever the case is. So there's a, really a whole other class to do on women in Judaism in, in Jonathan Sachs's ideas. Thank you, Shirley, for that. Someone else, please. Don't be shy. Hi. So you kind of um, talked about it at uh, several points during the talk here. But, um, and as you said, this isn't a purely kind of a, um, just a celebration of Rabbi Sachs, but it's also a critical look at his, his thoughts and his teaching. But uh, what do you think would be, um, even though he has all these great, great teachings throughout the, the many decades in leadership, what would probably be the most nuanced critique of uh, Rabbi Sachs's work that will have a uh, lasting impact, you think, in the next decades to come? Okay, great, great. Thank you for that. Um, so, you know, only, only, uh, only, only history will tell um, which of his ideas will, uh, you know, prove to be right um, and not right. Um, and, um, uh, and, uh, and, and for me, uh, his greatness far exceeds um, any of the smaller questions around around critiques, um, but just to flag some of these issues because they are important um, uh, to think about um, in terms of what some of those critiques would be, which doesn't mean they're true or right, but just ones that emerge. One is the critique from the non-orthodoxy. He would not attend Limud. He would not attend Limud. Of course, Limud emerged out of the UK. 
and um, he would not attend, um, and he wanted to attend. He was for, he was formative in 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 the launching and founding of Limud, but then the Haredi establishment forced him not to, and he bowed to that because it would because there there is an there is an ultra orthodox position that you can't validate reform or conservative rabbis. You can't sit on panels with them or or present with them, and so he he ultimately, even though he thought Limud was so important, he would not attend it. He would not attend it for that reason. He also famously was in a controversy where the mo- the most famous Masorti, what you can call conservative rabbi, he didn't he blocked him from getting an an, an aliyah in shul, Louis Jacobs, uh, at his at grandson's bar mitzvah, which really upset the conservative Jewish world. Again, the question of how was this about his rejection of pluralism, or was this about pressures that he needed to respond to? He also didn't attend the most prominent uh, British British Jewry's reform rabbi's funeral um, for for a similar reason. And so there's a sense over there that he was an orthodox apologist. He um, he was not about Claudius Yisrael, about the Jewish people. He didn't honor Jewish diversity and denominations, and he, he didn't go far enough in pluralism. Now, what people who would say who would defend him would be, actually, he believed in these things, but he was in a very constrained position politically to hold on to his role, um, and yet um, uh, to be able to hold on to the platform he had um, as the Av Beitin of the London Beitin and as the chief rabbi position, uh, it was, was very difficult to hold on to. That's one form of defense. The other form of defense would defend on the content. They would say, actually, we think he's right. Orthodox is the only truth. And the other truths shouldn't be validated, right? Those who love him more within, more, more implanted within uh, the Orthodox camp. That, yeah, yes, he was very respectful. In fact, I heard one story recently. He was in a hotel in Jerusalem where a, a lesbian reform rabbi approached him during the meal and said, I'm so sorry to bother you. I just want to let you know, I, you know, I'm, I, you probably don't want to talk to me much because I'm a lesbian reform rabbi and, and you know, and, and I'm reform. But I just want to say I've read your books and they're inspiring to me. And he said, please sit down. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about your rabbinate. Tell me about your ideas. And he honored her and wanted to listen to her. And there's stories like this that although he has political maneuvering he has around certain issues, that on a one-to-one level, he wants to hear people. He wants to understand. He wants to, he wants to dialogue. Okay, the, the, other, the other two I would point to, although there's other categories. One is this idea we talked about already, this idea of politics. Those who feel um, that... Um, uh, he he dodged some moral responsibility in responding to uh, major political issues. Someone pro-life would say he wasn't an advocate for pro-life in certain ways, or pro-choice would say he wasn't there on pro-choice issues, right? He wasn't a political warrior as as someone would want him to be. And the last one I'll say is on on, on the social justice side that he was the most articulate uh, 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 visionary, perhaps of bringing Jewish ideas and ideals into the modern world for justice and ethics. And yet there are not so many um, manifestations one can point to where he was on the front lines. You don't hear stories of a Jonathan Sachs, like a Heschel of marching with Martin Luther King or of, of standing in a, in a, you know, up for workers in the public sphere or taking a hunger strike for, uh, for people in poverty or, like chaining himself to a wall against genocide, right? This is not, now one, he might say, oh, I love those things and I love that. That's just not my talent. I'm not an activist or a change maker, right? But someone else might say, um, you know, if you're gonna, there can't be a big gap between what you preach 
of justice and what you live and act in the world, right? You need to be a model of that. And so, again, that's not me offering a critique as much as kind of honor, like acknowledging some of the critiques that emerge out there. And I respond to these not to diminish his greatness, but because I think he was, as I've said, the greatest ambassador for Judaism, the, the most articulate writer and spokesperson for inspiring Jewish wisdom and ideas. And like everyone, um, myself most certainly included, we all have our great deficiencies of things we're really potentially good at and things we're just not good at or things we can't do. And some of us try to do a lot of things and we can't hold it together. And he talks about that, of holding on to our talents and letting go of some of those, those weaknesses and challenges. And he's aware of some of them. So, um, um, Rabbi, did you, did you yeah. Rabbi, after he stepped down from the, from being the chief rabbinate. Yes, did, right. did that open him up to, to be more discussive? And something I mentioned earlier and you hit upon <clears throat> to me is the whole question of right. that he considered Jews the chosen people or a chosen people. And this is sort of thing that, that what you're saying, I'm getting mixed. Yes, Michael, you're right. You're right. So, so this is, this is, that's a great question because in this last decade, one might say, oh, you've, you're liberated from the shackles of the chief rabbinate. Now you can go back and say your more radical ideas and do bigger things and whatever the case is. You don't have to be confined. And he, and he did not do that. He did not do that, which leads one to one of two conclusions. Either that um, he never believed in those, uh, those broader ideas in the first place. In fact, he was an inclusivist, not a pluralist. Um, he did not attend the mood after his chief rabbinate. Um, he did not become an activist or engage in more radical theology. Afterwards, he really towed the line. Now, the, again, one response to that is, in fact, that that was his line. He had changed. He wasn't only bowing to the Haredi establishment anymore, but actually um, he had come to really absorb and internalize the role of defender of the Jews, defender of orthodoxy, defender of faith, and, and not rocking that boat. Um, the alternative perspective there is that he was sensitive to the role that he had come to play. Chief Rabbi Mervis, who followed his successor, who's still over there, becomes a big advocate for LGBT um, Jews in orthodoxy. LGBT inclusion in, in, in schools in ways that Sachs never did. Now, one might say, fairly, the LGBT issue changed, changed um, drastically over the last decade, right? Obama, in his first uh, campaign, was against gay marriage, same-sex marriage. Right in his second uh, his second presidential run, of course he was in favor of it. The whole world had changed. America had changed so drastically in four years. So Sachs, if he was today, where would he be? So Mervis changes on that. On and also Mervis, one of the very first things he does is he attends Limud. He attends Limud. He, the, the Haredi establishment's going to push back on him. He's going to do it anyways, and he survives it. And so some some said Sachs didn't attend because he didn't want to overshadow Mervis. Right. Mervis's was in the, Mervis was in the light now. Mervis is not a big public intellectual like Sachs is. He has his own talents. Um, and so Mervis should get the light of the chief rabbi. If Sachs attended, he would take all the light. So he wanted to pull back. And he felt that he had already honored that position. Why not continue to honor it? So the controversy kind of remained of where did he stand on such an, such an issue? Okay, let's take one more, one more question or thought here. Yes, um, it's... Hi, it's Tal my name Tally Katz. Hi, how are you? Hi, Tally Katz. Hi. Um, uh, I find it very interesting because I think this uh, what you said sort of reinforces um, where it's it's challenging 
to hear his words, you know, in terms of the, uh, the scale, is he walking the, his own words? Is he walking the, the talk of this tour? But I really find um, being one-to-one -one with him many, many years ago at a Thanksgiving dinner uh, at Palm Beach Synagogue, wow. he really is such, I felt his humility. I felt his authenticity. And I wonder if somewhere in his neshama, um, he didn't talk about depression, but maybe somewhere in that, in his neshama, he has wrestled with it. I think that is, is my, maybe my feeling that, um, that to profess all, um, like you said, doesn't believe in plurals, but to profess his, op his, his open tent, like an Avraham. It was really like an Avraham with his open tent that somewhere I wonder in this neshama if he wrestled with that he couldn't um, go forward as an activist, as you are, as a Heschel, as an Avi, you know, Rav Avi Weiss, that he, um, he couldn't do that. Thank you. Thank you for that, Talian. And, 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 and with that, I'll move towards concluding remarks. That's a great place to end on, which is to say so many people were agitated that he wouldn't take a stand on anything, almost anything. Right. I'll give you an example. In modern orthodoxy, everybody wanted him to take a stand on, again, the women's issues, the LGBT issues, right, the um, secular study issues, dimensions of Zionism and how that intersects with theology, right, pressing halachic issues, and he wouldn't do it. He didn't view his role as in engaging in denominational issues, the, the various streams of orthodoxy, ultra-orthodoxy, Hasidic Judaism, centrist orthodoxy, modern orthodoxy, progressive orthodoxy. He didn't want to play a role in navigating that. He didn't want to take a stand on denominationalism or politics. And some, again, would say that's not his talent, or some would say that that, that was a lack of, of, of courage, of, um, or some would say this was about him surviving. But I think um, there's different roles. And there are rabbis who will say, um, I don't want to polarize. I don't want to mix religion and, and politics. And there's those who view themselves as educators and activists who want to agitate. They want to challenge people to think. They want to challenge to create change in the streets, right? Like an Avi Weiss, as you mentioned, who's going to fight for Soviet Jewry in the streets. Or Saul Berman, who's going to fight for civil rights in the march in Selma, right? Coming out of that world. Um, and so, but in the end of the day, regardless of our philosophy on that, do we take a stand? Do we not take a stand? Do we take an Elie Wiesel approach that silence only helps the oppressor, never the oppressed, right? And that not taking a stand is an immoral abdication? Or do we take an approach that, of, uh, that Torah goes beyond politics and soars beyond it, and we don't need to take stands? We have a different role to play. Okay, that's a good, that's a good debate. But closing on the attributes you pointed to is where I want to close. He was a mensch. He was a mensch. He was humble. He was a serious scholar. He was an advocate for authentic Judaism. He was someone who put the best of Judaism, I think, out into the public sphere. Sometimes he's an apologist, right? Not dealing with the messy realities and texts, just putting the positive sides out. Nonetheless, as, 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 as such an inspiring model of what Judaism is ultimately about for Gentiles to understand Jews and also for him to put the best of other faiths out. It's very easy to say, here's the best of Judaism. Here's the worst of Islam. Here's the best of Judaism. Here's the worst of atheists. 
He didn't do that. He said, here's the best of what atheists have to say. Here's the best of what Christians and Muslims have to say. And here's the best of what Judaism has to say. And I still think Judaism is the most true. And I think traditional Judaism is the most true. Because I give, I give credit to those and I show their goodness does not mean I'm a pluralist. Where I say they're true, I'm just acknowledging the, the, you know, some of the truth that they're getting close to over there. And so I think that a major hole is left in the Jewish people as a defender of the Jews, a defender of Torah, as an articulate philosopher. Um, and, and I think that, that we can walk away with so much from this. We can walk away with the treasures of his books, the treasures of his podcasts, the treasures of the stories of how he showed kindness and cared for other people, the treasure of a humble leadership model, right? Uh, that said, we live with uncertainty, that said, you know, I'm not going to take a stand on everything. The humility of, of, of stepping back in many ways, the, the humility of knowing his talents and what weren't his talents. May his memory be a blessing. May we be inspired by his goodness. May we engage in the critiques, the critical thought of his ideas where we agree or disagree because that honors him. That honors him, but ultimately walk away with an inspired Jews. And here's the last thing I'll say. Some of Sachs' ideas can feel so obvious to me. And I think that's because... Sachs Judaism has been incorporated eternally into Judaism. That some of the things that he said 20 years ago that nobody had said in the way he had said it were um, really new frameworks for thought. Judaism as protest. This was a new way to think of it, subversive, right? That may be obvious to some today, but get absorbed. Everyone, I'm so sorry I went half hour over time. I just couldn't, I had to do justice a little bit more to some of these ideas here. I wish everyone lots good health and bracha and hatzlacha. Yes, yes, listen to his TED Talk. Mim, thank you for that. Listen to his TED Talk, his on being, so many different talks he has out there that you can enjoy. Many blessings for a great day. Thank you so much. You're absolutely.